this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or anyone who's looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. It's the basis of the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on October 1, 2023. It's part of our series called Vitality, Rest, Renew, Reset, as we learn how to live into a life of renewal. Let's hear first the text from Daniel chapter 1. I'll be reading from the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the sanctuary of his God. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, Bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration from the king's choice bread and from the wine which he drank. He ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid that of my lord king who has allotted your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison to the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please put your servants to the test for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence. And the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he put them to the test for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better. They were fatter than all the other youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine, which they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. Now, this is not a particularly exciting text if you're not a huge fan of vegetables. Growing up as a child, I couldn't stand vegetables, but I had to come to a reckoning that uh, my parents only knew one way to 
cook those vegetables, which was to boil them to death in water. I learned later in life that there are other ways to make vegetables, so this story became eminently more attractive to me. Well, we need to start this story in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1 to help us understand the setting that's gone on here. And much like last week's episode where we talked about the setting of Haggai, uh, the book of Daniel needs a similar kind of setting for us. In Daniel uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 2, in the timeline of these events that Israel had divided itself into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was destroyed in 722 uh, by uh, Sennacherib, one of the Assyrian generals who went on to become a king. But Judah remained. Judah was not destroyed by the Assyrians. And over a period of about, about 110, 115 years, eventually a man named Jehoiakim became the king of Judah. Now Jehoiakim was nothing more than a vassal king of the Egyptians to his south. A vassal king meant he was king in name only. It was the Egyptians that really ruled over the world as far as Jehoiakim was concerned. Now, if you just take a quick look at a map, you'll you'll see where Egypt is located and you'll see where uh, Babylon is located. Now, Babylon is where Iraq is today. And in between those two destinations is a giant patch of desert called the Arabian Desert. There's no crossing it. And so in order to cross it, you have to kind of go from Iraq up to the northwest and around and down a very slim passage of land along the Mediterranean Sea if you wanted to get to Egypt. That movement, that arcing path that goes from Mesopotamia, the arc of around Mesopotamia is called the Fertile Crescent. It's this uh, path and patch of land that was not part of the desert. It was the only fertile soil around where you could grow anything, hence its name. Well, needless to say, the Babylonians and the Egyptians were at war with each other, and Palestine, or Israel, or Judah, uh, that is that little strip of land that one must march across in order to get from one to the other. So in the, in the, the battle between the Egyptians and the uh, Babylonians, this little strip of land becomes very strategic and important. All the more so in this particular episode because uh, Jehoiakim, who had aligned himself with the Egyptian pharaoh, uh, was right in the crosshairs. Egypt was actually defeated by Nebuchadnezzar when he was a general at Carchemish, which is north of Palestine. So this battle occurred north of where Judah is. And so uh, Jehoiakim in Judah thinks he's behind the lines, in which case he actually is not. And so uh, during this campaign, though, of this battle between the Egyptians and the Babylonians that takes place just north of Judah in Carchemish, um, Nebuchadnezzar's father, who was king of Babylon, his name was Nabopolassar, he died during the midst of that campaign. And so Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden becomes king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar continues south. He finishes the Battle of Carchemish. He mops up the Egyptian army, and he keeps going south. And as he does, he takes every single one of the states that Egypt had made into its vassal states. This is important and part of the story because uh, Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah, was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho, or Necho. 
So it's the, the time of this attack by the Babylonians in Jerusalem occurred right around the spring or summertime of 605 BCE. Now, in verse 2, it's interesting that the writer states that the Lord handed Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim's sin and submission to Egypt had now come back to bite him. Well, he made a choice to align himself with the Egyptians rather than the Babylonians, and he made the wrong choice. He made the choice of aligning himself with any foreign king, and God simply allows him to experience the natural consequences of his actions. He betrayed in many ways his own calling uh, as the Judean king and aligned himself with the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar, it says in the story, took some of the vessels from the house of God, that's the Jewish temple, and he took them back to Babylon with him. Now, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar knew there were vessels there to be taken. Well, we can read in other stories in the Bible that are easy to find that 67 years earlier, one of Judah's kings showed all of these vessels to the Babylonians at that time. So they knew they were there for the taking. And so this is just a long chain of foolish decisions that ultimately lead to uh, the Babylonian invasion in 605 that would come in three waves, 605, 597, and then 586. It opens up a key passageway for us even here at the outset that what we often think of God's punishment is actually really just the natural consequences of human action. So what happens to Jehoiakim is nothing more than the result of his actions. By surrendering to Egypt, he put his own nation in the crosshairs of the Babylonians. So it's important that we remember here that when God is not the punisher, we fear in many ways that we're diminishing God, that it's important for us to make God look strong and big and good so we see God as punisher. Far from it. Remember that Jehoiakim, uh, the, the, the king is experiencing the natural results of his actions. Jehoiakim made a critical and strategic mistake, and he wasn't the first one to do that. And so it's the natural order of things that these things happen. So who is it that created the natural order of all those things? Now, this is another theological conversation for another day, but what I want us to remember is uh, that we really must keep in mind that natural consequences are nothing more than an expression of the divine order, just in a different sort of way. It tells us in verses 3 to 7 that in the, the people that were taken in that first deportation in 605 BCE by Nebuchadnezzar, not only were there uh, gold and silver vessels taken from the temple, but there were also people taken as well. So Nebuchadnezzar, uh, now that he's now crowned king, he's back in Babylon, he orders his chief to bring some of the Jews taken from Judah. These are likely members of the royal households of not only Jehoiakim's household, but perhaps his brothers, perhaps their nieces, nephews, children, whoever they are. And, and they're taken to Babylon to ensure that no one tries to usurp the Judean throne after the Babylonians have removed Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim's removal from the throne is uh, rather graphic. I won't bother to recall it for you here, but uh, if you feel like uh, reading what happens in that story, you're welcome to visit Second Kings or Second Chronicles and read about what happens to Jehoiakim. 
Now, these youth that Nebuchadnezzar brings forward in his royal court um, have some qualifications, and it tells us in verses 3 to 7 what those are. Number one, that they were youth. And uh, the best we can tell from the Hebrew words used here and kind of the similar rites of passage that Babylonian and then Persian uh, young people would go through, that they're probably about 13 or 14 years old. They're to have no impairment, and that's kind of coded language that they're not eunuchs, that they haven't been castrated, that they're fully functional and unimpaired people. Second, uh, third, that they're good-looking and I'm sorry, yes, it means exactly what it says, that they were of good looks. And fourth, they were suitable for instruction. And it's interesting with the next phrase that comes, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. This is um, not so much that they were smart or knew a lot. It's that they demonstrated aptitude. They were teachable. They were ready to receive and able to receive knowledge. And then ultimately, they had an ability to serve in the king's court. This helps us begin to understand what's going on in this text just a little bit. The ability to serve in the king's court. See, the, the training of these people, their education and their qualifications, is, is really an act of power by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is one of the ways the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar included, displayed their power to other people. They would take people that they had conquered from all over the ancient world, and they would put them in their court. They would put them in the court of the king. How better to display the people that you have conquered than to have them all standing around serving you in your court. Now, it tells us in the text what they need to learn. They need to learn first the language of the Babylonians, which in this case is Akkadian. Um, and it, Akkadian is usually written in a, a form called cuneiform. Um, it's a form of writing that was one of the earliest forms of writing that's used uh, with a little triangular stylus that you would press in to undried clay, moist clay, so it would leave a mark behind. These markings with this little stylus can be seen around the world in museums and different places to this day. So that's what they're taught. They're taught Akkadian and how to use cuneiform to write it with this little triangular stylus. Of course, they would also know Hebrew. They would know uh, Persian later. That's the successor language to Akkadian. And they would also begin to learn some of the very basics of Aramaic as it emerged in its most primitive form. And it said that they would learn the culture of the Chaldeans. That's a word we haven't seen before in this text. We've talked a lot about Babylonians, but not a lot about Chaldeans. Chaldeans were a subgroup of the Babylonians. Now, Without getting into a lot of ancient Near Eastern history, there was a, a Babylonian empire several centuries earlier, which was massive and expansive around the ancient world. This Babylonian empire is commonly called the Neo-Babylonian empire because it is reflective of a set of Chaldean kings who ruled over the ancient world. Uh, if you were to go look for the Chaldeans, you would go look today in the southern part of Iraq. And if you followed the news over the last you know, 20 to 30 years, many, many, many of these historic archaeological locations that mark the Chaldean civilization have been destroyed. 
uh, by various um, uh, terrorists and some Islamic groups and ISIS and others have destroyed some of these monuments that are no longer there to see today. So a lot of the Chaldean history is being erased unless it's contained in a museum somewhere. It's hard to even find it in today's Iraq. Now, they were given food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and they entered the king's personal service as advisors, courtiers, or you know those who essentially stood around. And as we get to the end of the text in verse 7, verse 6 and 7, we learn the names of four of those young people that were recruited to be a part of the king's court. And this introduction is the introduction to the characters of our story. First, there's Daniel. Now, Daniel it will be given a new Babylonian name, Belshazzar. But the word Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. The, the second of the four is Hananiah, who's given the Babylonian name Shadrach. And the word Hananiah in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious or God is gracious. And then there is Mishael, whose name is changed into a Babylonian name, Meshach. You might notice that Mishael and Meshach sound somewhat alike. And that's because uh, Mishael means who is what God is. In other words, that they're the God that Mishael serves is uncomparable. And Meshach is a Babylonian or Akkadian variant on that. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. And the fourth one is Azariah who is given a Babylonian name, Abednego. And Azariah in Hebrew means Yahweh had or will help. Now, it's got to be noted here that their Hebrew names pay homage to the Jewish God, either the name God, El in Hebrew, like Daniel is in there, or Mishael, the word El for God is in their name, or Hananiah or Azariah, they end in the ah sound, which is a nod to Yahweh, the name of the Jewish God. But their Babylonian names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these are their Babylonian names, and those names honor Babylonian gods. It opens up a key passageway for us here that we really must pay attention to. Being distinct is the heart of a disciple's behavior and identity. So what's happening in the story in Daniel is not an erasure of Jewish life, but an assimilation of it, trying to make Jewish life normalized with Babylonian life. Nebuchadnezzar is not trying to take away their identity per se. What he's trying to do is make it known that their identity now serves him. What we'll begin to see shortly is that Daniel will never be a courtier. He will never be an attendant in the court. He carves a path for himself with Nebuchadnezzar that he actually becomes a prophet to Nebuchadnezzar, pointing truth to him along with the others. It's important for us to remember even today that the disciples of Jesus have distinctive marks. What are they? You see, these distinctive marks are not for our benefit, but they're for the benefit of those around us in power. And one of the distinctive marks we're going to learn in a moment that Daniel embraces is not eating any of the food or wine that the king gives him. It's going to help us understand better how the story of Daniel works and how we might learn how to live our life in a way that models what Daniel has done here. 
finally, we turn to the last half of this text, verses 8 to 16, where we focus on the peculiar diet that Daniel and his friends eat. Now, part of the distinctiveness is that Daniel and his three friends are not going to eat the rich food served to them by the commanders and the other people who've been charged with their training. Now, it's important that we not read into this text what is not here. The text doesn't say anything at all about the food or the wine itself, just that it's rich food. Now, lots of arguments have been made that the food that they were being served was unkosher. It could have been eating bacon or pork, who knows what else. Or it could have just simply been ill-befitting a Jewish person. Maybe the, the, the meat that they were offered wasn't slaughtered correctly. Or maybe it was offered to idols or something of that sort. But the text doesn't tell us anything about the food that they didn't eat, other than it was rich food, the food the king ate. All it says is defile. Now, there's lots of meanings here, but there's one that, for me, just stands out just a little bit more from the others. These other analyses of the food being unkosher or not prepared correctly, they could very well be correct, but one meaning stands out just a little bit more for me, and it's, it was really emerged from a scholar named Joyce Baldwin in the 20th century. And what Baldwin asserts is that Daniel's refusal to eat the food is really more about not being fully submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. He's defiant. And it's really more about the defiance and the distinctiveness than it is about some technicalities around the, the kosherness of the food. Daniel and his friends are well-loved by the one in charge of their destruction. It says that God uh, caused the, the, the attendant of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would show them favor. So Daniel and his three friends are well-loved. And that chief, the one who's responsible for taking care of them, for feeding them, teaching them, training them, is afraid that if they don't eat the meat, the food that the king has given them, that they're going to become scrawny and downtrodden, and it's going to make him look bad. And so the king, he says, will have his head if he doesn't present them as strong and vital, is equal with all of the other young boys that were being trained during this time. And so Daniel suggests the famous vegetable test. He tells uh, the, the, the coordinator, the trainer for uh, their group that they're going to eat vegetables for 10 days. Now, it's likely that these same vegetables, if the king was eating them, that those vegetables were also offered as a sacrifice to idols as well. So it's kind of splitting that hair is a little hard. But at issue is not what the food is. It's what the food means. Daniel is charting a course here of being distinct, different, defiant, refusing to comply in just one part of what the king wants to see happen. And lo and behold, after 10 days of eating vegetables... Daniel and his friends look better than all of the other young men who are eating the king's choice food. So the chief kept serving them vegetables. It's a key passageway for us here. Being distinct for Christ is not about the rules. It's about standing apart. You see, the rules and requirements of being Christian are assumed to set us apart. So we have to listen carefully to what those rules are. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians told women not to braid their hair. Why? 
because the only women who braided their hair in the day of Paul were prostitutes. And so he's essentially telling the women in the churches in Corinth and the surrounding area, please try to not look like a prostitute is what he's telling them. The rules are about being distinct, about different, being different and not keeping them. So in this sense, the rules that we live by in some ways are contextual and changing. Daniel abstains from rich food. This is his choice in that context, in that moment that helps him and his three friends stand apart. Is there anything wrong with the food? Well, to be honest, we're not really certain. But we do know that him just eating vegetables and looking vital and robust, now that was distinct. So as we sit here as followers of Jesus in 2023, we really need to think about what makes us distinct today. What would make us stand out and stand apart in the same way Daniel does? If you have comments or reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. You'll see when you visit the website, a button in the upper right-hand corner that says News. Click on it, and then the drop-down menu, select Podcast, and then click on this week's episode. Leave a comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.